Good morning. You know, sometimes when someone passes away, I'll hear a person say, well, he had a good life. Or sometimes we might express that in terms of a wish. I want to have a good life. What is a good life? What does it mean to have a good life? What does it mean to live the good life? Well, some people measure that physically. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the French philosopher, said, Am I on? Move up closer then. (laughs) Test. There I am. Somehow I sound more authoritarian in a mic. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the French philosopher, said, happiness is a good bank account, a good cook, and a good digestion. In other words, if you have money, food, and health, you are living the good life. Or as someone put it, it's a hot tub, a back rub, and a drink at the pub. That's the good life. Other people would say, no, you don't measure it physically, you measure it materially. The old bumper sticker, whoever dies with the most toys wins. If you've got a mansion, a Mercedes, and a mink, you're living the good life. You're doing good if you have goods. You know, the Bible tells us the good life is not measured by the physical circumstances you go through. And the good life is not measured by the material possessions that you have. The good life is measured by the spiritual reality in your life. Galatians 5.22 says the fruit of the Spirit is goodness. So contrary to popular opinion, the good life is not looking good, It's not feeling good. It's not having goods. It's a Spirit-produced quality. My my wife loves McDonald's coffee, so I went through yesterday to get her a coffee. and Went through the drive-thru, and the lady, I said, I want a coffee, and I want six cream and six equal. And she said, do you want that inside or to the side? And I said, I want it to the side. But you know, when it comes to goodness, you don't want your goodness to the side. You want your goodness inside. Because true goodness is not from the outside in. True goodness is from the inside out. And so this morning, I want to talk about what goodness looks like, what the good life looks like. And I want to point out four things about it. Number one is the pattern of goodness. Now, if you've been with us through this series, you know that every one of these characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit has a pattern, and that pattern is always God. And it's no different with goodness. Psalm 34, 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. The pattern of goodness is God. God's work is good. Romans 8.28 says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. God's work is good. 
God's Word is good. Psalm 119.39 says, Your ordinances are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. God's Word is good. God's ways are good. We saw in James chapter 1 and verse 17 that every good thing, every good thing is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. God's ways are good. And God's will is good. Paul says in Romans 12.2 that we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice so that we will prove what the will of God is, that which is good. God's work is good. God's Word is good. God's ways are good. God's will is good. So if you're going to talk about good, you have to talk about God. Because there is no good without God. In fact, our English word good actually comes from an old Anglo-Saxon word that means God. So when you say goodbye, you're really saying God be with you. When you say have a good day, you're really saying have a God day. When you say be a good boy, you're really saying be a God boy. When, you're say, when you say be good, you're really saying, be like God. And that's fitting, because He is the pattern of goodness. Secondly, we see the possibility of goodness. In Mark chapter 10, the rich young ruler came to Jesus. And he addressed Jesus as good teacher. He said, good teacher, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus gave him the four spiritual laws. Right? No. Because you see, this guy didn't understand what good meant. So he said, good teacher, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You see, God has exclusive rights to the word good. Now, that's a problem for a lot of people. Because psychologists today will tell you that man is basically good. If he just had a little more education, and you just put him in a little better environment, he would be good. But the Bible says otherwise. Romans chapter 3 and verse 12 says there is none good, no, not one. You see, man is not basically good. Man is basically bad. And if you're here today and you're a religious person, this is a big problem for you. Because you are betting your life on the fact that God is going to let you into heaven because you're good. And the Bible says, there's nobody good. In fact, in Isaiah 64, 6, it tells us that even what we call good is not really good. Because it says, all of our good deeds are like filthy rags. And that's an interesting Hebrew word. When it says filthy rags, it's not talking about dish rags. It's not talking about shop rags. It's a Hebrew word that means a minstrel cloth. When I was younger, Maybe I shouldn't go here with this illustration. 
let me qualify this by saying my wife will hate me saying this. But when I was younger, we used to talk about a lady being on the rag. That's a biblical concept. God says, the best things you do are like a used tampon. That's what he's saying. Now what's interesting is, what is on a minstrel rag? It's the, it's the egg that comes out that was never fertilized. It, it's something that had the potential for life, but is dead. Isn't that interesting? That's who we are in and of ourselves. We have the potential for life, but we are dead spiritually. And he says, even the best things I do are like a minstrel rag. And the thing about a minstrel rag is you don't wash it and use it again. You throw it away because it's useless. Someone has pointed out that if you take the word good and you remove the word God, you're left with a big fat zero because without God, there is no good. You say, well, Dan, that raises the question, if no one is good except God alone, how can we possibly do good? And the answer is found in the new covenant that God makes with us. In our relationship with God, God has a covenant agreement with us. And we read about the new covenant in passages in the Bible like Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, Hebrews chapter 8. The old covenant was the law. In the law, God said, don't do this, do that. In other words, in the law, God said, be good. And how did we do with that? We fell short. We missed the mark. God said, be good. And then He looked around and said, there is none who does good. There is not even one. And so God made a new covenant with us. And in that new covenant, God no longer says, be good. God says, I'm going to make you good. And if you read in those passages about the new covenant, what's interesting is, it doesn't have things that it says we're supposed to do. It has things that God has done. And here's what it says. It says, God says, I will forgive all their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. Isn't that exciting? First covenant, God says, you be good. We failed. Second covenant, God says, I'm going to forgive all your sins. And I'm going to cleanse you and make you righteous. That's God's doing. That's an unconditional covenant. That's a covenant of grace. You see, God's standard is still perfection. And God doesn't grade on a curve. But let me tell you something exciting. God doesn't grade on a curve, but God does grade on a cross. And on the cross, He forgives you and me. And establishes that covenant, that covenant relationship that we could not do ourselves. And then it says this in those same passages. It says, God says, I will give you a new heart. He forgives you and He creates in you a new heart. And that new heart gives you the potential, the possibility 
to actually do good. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 12, 35. He said, the good man, out of the good treasure of the heart, brings forth good things. You see, goodness is not a matter of the head. It's the matter of the heart. It's not a matter of knowing better. It's a matter of being better. And God has made you to be a new creation with a new heart. And out of that heart comes good things. So if you are saved here today, God has taken you from someone who had no possibility to do good to now being someone who has every possibility to do good. Here's how he spelled it out in Ephesians 2.10. He said, we have been created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Here's what he said in Titus 2.14. He says, Jesus gave Himself for us that He might redeem us so that we would be a people zealous for good deeds. And that's why we read in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is goodness. Goodness is not something you manufacture in yourself. Goodness is something God produces in you with a new heart and His Spirit. He makes it possible. And then the third thing I want us to look at is the practice of goodness. The question is, how do I get goodness out of my heart and into my actions? You see, we all live with this kind of frustration. We have these good intentions, but we always don't have those good actions that follow it up. I'm good at telling my wife what I meant to do. You feel that frustration? I don't want to... I say, I don't want to be materialistic, but I find myself spending money on things I shouldn't spend money on. I say, I want to have quality time with my kids, but I still can't seem to make the time to do that. I tell my wife, I'm going to give you quality time, and she keeps coming back and saying, you're giving me leftovers. What is that? That's a frustration between what's in my heart and what's in my actions. Now the encouraging thing is that Paul dealt with that same frustration. And in Romans chapter 7 and verse 18, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish, I do not do. Isn't that encouraging? Now the question is, how do I get past that frustration gap? How do I get goodness from my intentions to my actions? There's a word that's often used in Psalms and Proverbs. And it kind of captures this idea. It's the word integrity. The word integrity is from the word to integrate. And integrity means to integrate my heart values into my daily actions. Now how do I do that? Well, let me give you some suggestions. 
Number one is speak honestly. We all say honesty is the best policy, but some of us have let that policy lapse. If you're going to practice goodness, you're going to have to become someone who speaks honestly. George Burns said the most important thing about acting is honesty. If you can fake that, you've got it made. Let me tell you something. You can't fake honesty. Proverbs 10.9 says, He who walks in integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his ways will be found out. Abraham Lincoln said it this way, No one has a good enough memory to be a successful liar. You can't fake honesty, especially around the people you're closest to. In one survey, 91% of Americans admitted that they lie regularly. 91%. Why is that? Why do we lie? I think one of the reasons is we're afraid of what will happen if we tell the truth. If I tell my parents the truth, they'll kick me out of the house. If I tell my wife the truth, she'll kick me out of the house. If I tell my boss the truth, he'll kick me out of the company. If I tell, you know, if I tell the truth, I'm afraid of the consequences. And so in our futile attempt to keep the peace, we lie. And so when someone asks us, we say, everything's fine, I'm doing great. No problems, Mom. I'm not upset. I didn't do it. We oftentimes sacrifice honesty because we're afraid to take the risk of telling the truth. Let me tell you something. There's a much greater risk that you're dealing with when you sacrifice honesty because you are also sacrificing your integrity. And there is no greater commodity that you have. I love what Solomon said in Proverbs 20 and verse 7. He said, A righteous man who walks in his integrity, how blessed are his sons after him. Now most dads I know are working hard to leave their sons a heritage of accomplishments so that they'll look at their dad and say, wow, what a great guy my dad was. But can I tell you something you probably already know? Your kids don't really care about your accomplishments. They don't care if you're the CEO of the company. They don't care if you're the president of the Rotary Club. They don't care about all those plaques you've got on the wall. The greatest heritage you can give to your kids is to pass on a model of honesty. So number one is speak honestly. Number two is confess regularly. If we're going to see the fruit of goodness growing in our lives, we're going to have to weed the garden every once in a while. And how do you weed the garden? 
1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, if I'm going to start doing good, I first have to acknowledge and confess those things in my life that are not good. And when I become sensitive to the sin in my life, then I become more aware of the good things that God wants to produce in me. And let me remind you of something this morning. Confession is not just vertical. It's horizontal. We not only have to confess to the Lord, we have to confess to other people so that we restore relationships. If I come home and my son Brandon says, Dad, you want to go out and play pitch and catch? And I say, no, I'm busy. And then I sit down in front of the TV and watch CNN. After a little while, God nudges my heart, or more likely, my wife nudges the side of my head and says, that's wrong. What do I need to do? I need to confess that to the Lord, but I need to go to Brandon and say, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? You see, that restores relationships. And that principle is especially necessary in a marriage relationship. Ogden Nash put it in the form of a poem. He said, keep your marriage brimming with love in the loving cup. When you're wrong, admit it. And when you're right, shut up. I made the mistake this week of going to my wife and saying, is there something that I'm not doing? And just left it an open-ended thing, you know. And I had to stop her <laughs> after two things. Number one, she said, well, I kind of work on the principle that the last one out of bed makes the bed. Well, my wife gets up at 5.30 in the morning, so she's hard to beat. And then she said, you know, sometimes you leave piles of clothes on the floor. Now what I do, I, I do the laundry, so I come back in and, and I put it in the basket and I come back in my room and it's practical to me to think, you know, I could fold this up and put it in my drawer or I could just leave the basket here and kind of work out of the basket for a while. Well, when you're working out of the basket, you're supposed to put the dirty clothes in then you have to take your dirty clothes and throw them on the floor in another spot. That bothers her. So she tells me this. I asked for it. She tells me. You know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking, most guys don't even do their own laundry. Here I am doing my laundry, and I'm, it's still not enough. Now, why do I do that? Because we don't like to confess. We prefer to get defensive, don't we? You see, we freely say to people, I've got a long way to go. Yeah, I've got, I got a long way to go. I'm not perfect. I've got a long way to go. We say that all the time. But when someone close to you comes and tells you exactly how far you've got to go, and what direction you need to go to get there, what happens? No, no, no. Don't change me. 
See, if we're going to get goodness out of our hearts and into our actions, we're going to have to confess regularly. Thirdly, live consistently. Live consistently. Goodness can't be something you turn on and turn off in your life. It needs to be a consistent part of your life. And let me give you three areas to work on in this. Number one, in public and at home. In public and at home. So you can't be one way in public and another way at home. You have to develop consistency. Because when you don't have consistency, you know what the opposite is? It's hypocrisy. And why is it that I talk with so many guys especially who tell me that they're willing to let their families down to build their public image up? Which tells me what? I'm more concerned about impressing my boss. I'm more concerned about impressing my friends than I am to impress my family. See, there's a lot of people who can do your job probably better than you. There are a lot of people who can do my job better than me. But there's only one person who can be a father to my kids. And there's only one person who is called to be a husband to Lisa. And that's me. And that should be my priority. You see, I want to be admired by them. One of the benefits of my job is a lot of people come and tell me I'm wonderful. Not everybody. But a lot of people do. I don't know if they mean it or not. But you know, sometimes my wife will say, you're wonderful. And when my wife says that, it means more to me than what anybody else could say to me because she knows me sock piles and all. And I want to be admired by her. And I want to be admired by my kids. You have to have consistency in public and at home. Let me give you a second area for consistency. In words and in actions. I hope you never use the phrase, do what I say, not what I do. Because words alone will never change anyone. They have to be accompanied by actions. That's what John was saying in 1 John 3.18 when he said, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. There has to be a consistency between my walk and my talk. And dads, that's especially true with your kids. There needs to be consistency in the way you deal with them. I played baseball, and in baseball, baseball players don't have a problem with the umpire if he's consistent. If he calls that outside corner a strike on every pitch, they're okay with that because there's consistency there. And your kids are looking to you to be consistent between what you say you're going to do and what you do. That's integrity. Consistency in your words and actions. Let me give you a third one. Consistency 
in your social life and your secret life. You see, you can't be one way in front of people and another way when you're alone. Robert Redford was, was once walking across a hotel lobby. A woman saw him and followed him to the elevator, and she excitedly said, Are you the real Robert Redford? And as the doors were closing, he said, Only when I'm alone. Are you the real you? Both in public and in private? Someone has said, reputation is who other people think you are. Character is who you really are. And character is determined by what you do when no one else is around. Integrity is shaped in those moments when no one else sees you. One of my guilty pleasures is ice cream. And uh, I used to go to Snooks a lot, and I would go to Snooks and I'd go over to the ice cream container and just see what was on sale. If there was a really good deal, it was a really good deal. One day I was going into, this was several years ago, I was going into Snooks, I was walking in. As I was walking in, there were two managers who had stopped a fellow outside the door, and he had a, like a fifth of vodka in his pants, and they pulled it out. And, and I went on in, and they took the guy, and I watched him. They took him to the office. And uh, I went to the ice cream freezer and made my choices and came back, and I was standing in line at the checkout line. And as I was standing there, these same two managers came running across the front of the store screaming, everybody out, everybody leave, everybody leave. So we all, cashiers and everybody, we go out into the parking lot. We're standing out there. Next thing I know, I hear somebody screaming, he's got a gun. And I look, and this same guy, I saw them stop coming in, is running toward Long John Silver's waving a gun. And off he goes. Now, amidst all the chaos, I am now closer to my car than I am the cashier station. Amidst all the chaos, no one was going to notice if I just, you know, here I am with my uh, box of Dove bars in one hand, my pint of uh, Ben and Jerry's wavy gravy in the other hand. I'm kind of way out in the parking lot. It's, it's night. It's dark. Who's going to notice? Who's going to notice if I just get in my car and leave? Well, the answer is that God will notice. See, if we're going to practice goodness, we have to live consistently in both my public life and my home life, in both my words and my actions, in both socially and secretly. And then let me give you a fourth way to practice goodness, and that is commit openly. Don't wait until you have to choose to do good to choose to do good. You need to determine that ahead of time. When you got married and the pastor looked at you and said, do you take this woman to be your wedded wife? I hope you didn't say, uh, give me a minute. So you determine that ahead of time. 
And we need to do the same thing with goodness in our life. We determine in advance that I'm going to practice goodness. In Isaiah 45, 19, God says, I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. Aren't you glad? God makes His promises openly to you and me. And He wants you and I to make a commitment to goodness, to integrity publicly. One of the best ways you can do that is get somebody in your life who serves as an accountability partner to you and tell that guy or tell that girl, I want to be a man or woman of integrity. And I want you to help me stay on path with this. And when I fail, I'm going to tell you. And I want you to encourage me when I'm doing well in this area. Commit openly. I think that's why Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. Why does the Bible say we're to confess with our mouth? Does God need to hear that? No. He knows your heart better than you do. He knows whether you believe, but God knows there's power in confessing openly what I believe, and there's power in confessing openly I want to be a man or woman of integrity. Let me suggest a commitment you could make openly today. David made it in public in Psalm 101.2. He said, I will walk within my house I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. There's a commitment. I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. If you plan to reduce the frustration gap between your intentions and your actions, you need to make that kind of commitment openly. And then the fourth thing I want us to look at in closing is the power of goodness. Listen to this verse. Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Did you get that? The good that you do has the power to draw other people to Jesus Christ. Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, said, next to the might of God, the serene, silent beauty of a holy life is the most powerful influence in the world. We're talking in this series about how to be in the world, but not of the world. One of the ways is by showing this characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit, goodness. You see, whether you realize it or not, people are looking at you all the time. And they're asking themselves the question, do I want to surrender my life to Jesus if becoming a Christian means I will be like Him? I will be like If you are living a life of goodness, then they should be saying, yes, 
I want to be like him. I want to be like her. You see, your life can either be a stumbling block or a stepping stone. Which is it? When they came out with the Susan B. Anthony dollar, they expected that people were going to really like it. It only lasted three years. And when they asked people why they didn't like the Susan B. Anthony dollar, here's what the most common answer was. We don't want a dollar that looks like a quarter. Can you make the application? I'm a Christian. I'm a dollar. But if people look at me, say, you look like spare change, they're not getting the message that God wants to send through my life. I should be shining like a light. And the light that they see shining should be my good works, my good deeds, my good actions, the good in me produced by the Spirit of God. For many of your friends, you are the only Bible they're going to read. What are they seeing in your life? People have asked us why we, why we got these globes up here. It's a visual illustration. Because you are in a world of darkness, the question is, are you a light that's shining to make an impact on the world around you? Just as that's a visual, your life should be a visual illustration to others of what it means to know and love Jesus Christ, what it means to be transformed by Him. I think this is what St. Francis had in mind when he said, go and preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Go and preach the gospel. Every day you are preaching the gospel by your behavior. And one of the things that people should be seeing shining like a light through you is God's goodness through your life. Not just in your intentions, but in your actions. As God challenges us today, let's stand and worship and sing together as we close our service.